Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, I'm joined by a first-time guest co-pilot, the keyboard player from the Potter Than Hell podcast, Mr. Dylan Wright. Dylan, welcome to the R4 podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to finally be on. Yeah, well, this is the second episode in a row we've had someone from Potter Than Hell on, so pretty cool. Yeah, hopefully the listeners listeners don't get too sick of the Potter Than Hell guy. <laughs> So on this episode, we're going to review Joy Division's 1979 debut studio album, Unknown Pleasures. So Dylan, let's start with you. Where do you come in with Joy Division in this album? So I'm, I'm relatively young in terms of the rock podcast uh, realm. So I grew up listening to hard rock and heavy metal in my dad's household. And Joy Division, I really only saw them on the t-shirts because they were all Joy Division t-shirts all over the place of, of the album cover. Right. But then I first heard them. And this is probably going to lose some listeners uh, from a Fall Out Boy acoustic EP called My Heart Will Be the B-Side to My Tongue. And they did a cover of Love Will Tear Us Apart. And that was the first time that I heard the band and I was kind of interested in them and decided to check out Unknown Pleasures. And I just – my young emo heart that wanted to <laughs> like get into emotional lyrics really fell in love with them. Yeah, that's really cool because especially you being so young, I wouldn't think that this would be a band that would uh... – Appeal to yeah, I listened to My Chemical Romance, so it was the the lyrics were just hitting me in that 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 emotional beat that I really needed when I was a teenager. Because you know how it is, yeah. You so want to be rebellious, you don't want to be listening to what your dad listens to. So right, so I went the opposite connection direction. there. Well, yeah, well, Joy Division is very influential, so I suppose yeah, the connection would still flow through even to today's music. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those times where I honestly don't remember the first time I ever heard of Joy Division, but I think it was on MTV in the mid 80s or something because they were talking about or maybe they were interviewing New Order, the band that Joy Division turned into. And on a side note, it's actually still New Order is a band to this day. I've never really explored. I've, I've got to get around to doing that. But I knew the name Joy Division. And the next time I remember them popping up on my radar was in the early 90s when I got my handy-dandy Rolling Stone record guide book and I read the Joy Division entry and, oh shit, the singer killed himself. So that made me morbidly curious to hear what they sounded like. I mean, did they suck that bad that the lead vocalist couldn't go on? But I didn't get the album at the time for whatever reason and they just kind of disappeared for me again. I never heard their music and they totally fell off my radar until I started watching YouTube in the late aughts and I stumbled across some live performances of the band and that made me go, whoa, that's pretty nuts. So I did a little research and I realized what I was saying before, how influential Joy Division was to the post-punk music genre, which I very much like. So finally, I just gave up and went and bought Unknown Pleasures and Closer on CD at the same time. You know, well, the band only put out the two albums, right? So if you don't count compilations, so that's where Joy Division starts for me. So here's some basic facts about this record, and surprise, I'm using Wiki again. Unknown Pleasures is the debut studio album by English rock band Joy Division, released on June 15, 1979 on Factory Records. It was produced by Martin Hannett and was recorded in April 1979 at Strawberry Studios, Stockport, England. It reached number 71 on the UK album's chart and is certified gold by the BPI. And here's the band's lineup card. We've got Ian Curtis on lead vocals, 
Bernard Sumner, then known as Bernard Albrecht on guitar and keyboards. Peter Hook on bass guitar and backing vocals. Is that his real name? Stephen Morris on drums and percussion. Additionally, all tracks are written by Ian Curtis, Peter Hook, Stephen Morris, and Bernard Sumner. All right, let's head on over to a track-by-track analysis of this album. The lead-off track is Disorder. I've been waiting for a guy to come and take me by the hand. Cure these sensations make me feel the pleasures of a normal man. These sensations bear the insults, leave them for another day. Dylan, what do you think? This is a, a really surprising start to the album because you're so used to the band being moody and c- kind of low-key. And then this is kind of showing off their punk influence where they were at the beginning of their career. And uh, the drums are really bombastic. I love how Peter Hook's bass is just such a driving instrument on this song and the album as a whole. He has a very simple but energetic bass lines that like really speak to me as a, a bassist. Um, I love the swollen keyboard effects that are coming in and out, and there's like a sense of mystery that they they happen, and they go well with the lyrics that are kind of you know about being distant from from the crowd. And Ian Curtis's simple delivery really helps you take the lyrics in a lot better. And I I love when he does the feeling feeling feel, you know ending yeah. that he does. Yeah, uh, really a good energetic opener, I think. Yeah, so Stephen Morris plays the nervous drum beat that kind of acts as the pulse for the music. Peter Hook, as you said, he plays a bass line with a pick high up on the neck with rapid downstrokes. It, it, it sounds odd, though. It almost sounds wrong. It, it doesn't follow a typical pattern. Your brain goes, why the fuck did he do that? The bass isn't supposed to use such high notes. Yeah. Bernard Sumner's guitar is noisy, kind of clangy, almost like an alarm bell. And I guess here's where I need to talk about the famous production by Martin Hannett. There's a ton of open space in the music, but the band like doesn't explore it. They leave it there and it gives the music like a cold, detached atmosphere. It's like uh, like the music exists in a weird vacuum. And you couple this with Hannett's subtle use of AMS 1580 digital delays, Marshall time modulators and tape echo. And the overall feel you get, it's like you said, dark, mysterious. And most of all, it's just unsettling. Uh, this sure as shit ain't punk rock. You know, like you said, where Joy Division's initial roots were, but it sounded like nothing else in rock at the time. And then, of course, we have Ian Curtis. If you listen to the early tracks when the band was called Warsaw, his voice was a little bit more natural and a little bit higher. And the band's sound was very much British punk rock. But for this, he's deliberately singing lower and it's kind of jarring. He almost sounds out of tune sometimes. I don't know if you picked up on that. Like when I first heard this, I was like, what the fuck? He can't even sing. Especially when he raises, when he's getting like, <laughs> at the end, man. I thought he sounded all off key at first, but that's the effect his voice can have on you if you're not expecting it. And I wasn't, you know, when I first heard this. Lyrics, very evocative, and they're fairly obscure. To me, this one's about a guy who's losing his ability to feel. Even as the chaos of the world happens around him, he's depressed, but he doesn't want to be. He's got the spirit, but he's losing the feeling. He wants to feel like a normal man, but he's losing the sensations. I read that it could also be referencing his epilepsy, a disease that plagued him in the band throughout their career, and we'll be mentioning that certainly again later on. 
But his lyrics, I, I, I think he's a really good lyricist, and it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And there are layered clanging guitars underneath, and like I, you referenced, those keyboard whooshes that kind of add to the chaos of the track. And as an opener, this kind of slaps you in the face and just it leaves me off kilter. And to me, that's right where Joy Division wants you. Yeah, absolutely. It's everything sounds like it shouldn't work, but together they sound. It sounds right, but not in the way that you're used to it sounding great. It's so it's so interesting. Yes, it. Well, Peter, it it, it hooks you. Yeah. And you kind of and you kind of like how how is this hooking me? But it but but it does. The next track is Day of the Lords. Dylan, your thoughts. So this one's definitely more of the Joy Division that you're going to get for most of the rest of the album. More mysterious and dirgy right at the beginning. It almost sounds like the the start of Burn in Hell by Twisted Sister, but it's nowhere near that in another sense. And Ian sounds like a cross between Jim Morrison and Lou Reed on this song, I think. <laughs> it kind of does, yeah. <laughs> and I, I love the dark delivery of like the where will it end? It almost sounds like a like an apocalyptic chorus of monks or something. Because he doubles up his vocals, which is really interesting. And I think his his vocals, specifically on this song too, are, are really effective when he does very low for most of the song. And then at the end of the song, he's he's picking it up. He's doing like the frantic, very, you know, loud things. Like he's he's finally just sick of what's happening with the world and he has to yell and scream about it. I think it really works well for what's going on in this song. So yeah, like you were saying, the tempo is slowed down. I mean, way down. This isn't even mid-tempo. It's slower than that, but this is no ballad. And then Hook's bass starts this with that ascending line that Morris's drums follow at a snail's crawl. And then Hannett's production makes his kit sound electronic, even though it mostly isn't. He did incorporate some sin drums on the record too, but each individual drum was tracked so that Hannett could shape the sound primarily through subtle delay with no bleed over from the other pieces. So the drums sound mechanical, even though they're really not. Summer's guitar is distorted and percussive. It feels like it adds color and feel as opposed to carrying the musical weight with big riffing. That's not what this does. There are also these high keyboard lines that somewhat resemble violin strings that run throughout the track and they nestle in your ear. And they, again, it keeps you off balance. Lyrics, they're dark and oblique again. There's plenty of room for interpretation. I'll probably be saying that for almost every song. I pick up the feeling that Ian's singing about the pain of life going all the way back to childhood, suffering through the traumas that shape you into the adults we become. I also read that he was inspired by the horrors of World War II on this one, where, you know, I've seen the nights filled with blood, sport, and pain, and the bodies obtained, the bodies obtained. Uh, whatever the meaning is, it sure shit ain't happy. And he sings most of the lyrics and the verses in like a dead flat voice until the music ramps up. Like you said, he gets more excited and animated. You know, where will it end? I don't know where it's going to end for me, Ian, but I know exactly where it's going to end for you. Unfortunately, pal. Yeah. The following track is Candidate. Get to you 
Dylan, how about this one? So this one, I love how sparse it is at the beginning. You got those cool echoey drums and more of those hooky Peter Hook bass lines. Uh, <laughs> the guitar has these cool industrial-like noises going on in the background. And I call this the perfect song to play in a record store to scare off people. You don't want to buy greatest hits albums because you're kind of a hipster record store <laughs> and you want to kind of scare off the the regular public, quote unquote. <laughs> and I, I really love the lyrics. It's just second nature. It's what we've been shown. We're living by your rules. That's all that we know. It's it just really impactful lyrics from Ian Curtis. He he really knows how to write a poetic line for sure. Yeah. This fades in on an excruciatingly slow groove. The bass is staying in the low pocket this time with the simple drum beat, and the guitar is reverbed and sonically stays low as well. It's kind of like the sound blurs together, like this nightmarish dreamscape where there's like creepy noises and sound effects too that kind of appear in the track and just fade away into the ether. And it's just not going to let you relax. There's like a uh, claustrophobic tension that never gets released in this track. And Ian's voice is plaintive, and when it drops at the end of each stance, it feels off-key again. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> when he does that. <laughs> but it feels deliberate. You know, it feels like the band wants to keep you in the state of anxiety that it works like a charm on me. But it also keeps me fascinated. Like, where are they taking me? Now, the lyrics to me use political metaphors for a doomed relationship and knowing Ian's relationship issues with his wife and later on his girlfriend. It's hard to look past that. You know, his tone is bleak. He doesn't see things ending well. In one moment, he blames himself for messing with her values, and the next, he blames her for mistreating him. I mean, after all, they're living by her rules. He's contradicted, confused, ready to give up. And the the creepiness of the music just adds to the despair, right? This ride's not going to get any better. And I do like this track well enough, but honestly, if I've got to take one off, it's probably going to be this one. Maybe it's a little bit too sluggish. So I am going to call this one Aaron Stinky Stinker. <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that for sure. The next track is Insight. Dylan, your thoughts. So this one has a little more get up and go than the last two songs with another Peter Hook bass line. I, I, I love the laser shooting sound effects that happen in the middle of the song. Mm -hmm. It could be really cheesy, but I don't know. It, it comes off. It comes off cool to me. And there's like this ooh, ooh, vocal effect that happens after each uh, line in, in the verses. That's kind of funny when you notice it because you're <laughs> kind of expecting it each time. But uh, yeah, this one, this one for me is is pretty good. I I think it's a a little bit different compared to the last couple songs and doesn't compare to the next songs that are coming up that I really enjoy. 
So there's a very low, almost imperceptible drone that starts this. And we're almost 20 seconds into this track before we really hear anything else. And then we're hit again with the creepy reverbed ambient noises. And then around 40 seconds, the next rhythm fades in. High bass notes that also carry the melodic heft, along with that synthetic sounding drums that come across like a sinister clock marking time. The guitar is kind of pushed back in the mix and it kind of hovers in the background until the instrumental passages that act like choruses and then the guitar blares up. The droning rhythm pulses and then we hit like pew, 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 the those sci-fi noises <laughs> that penetrate through the murk and it stabs your eardrums. You're right. It, it should be cheesy, but for some reason it just works for some reason. I don't know. I can't explain it, but it does. Ian's singing about the meaningless of life. Our dreams always end. We spend our lives searching for these special moments in time that ultimately mean nothing. They're really just us wasting our time, and Ian throws his hands up. He doesn't want it anymore. He's not afraid of, he's not afraid of what, death, failure? I'm not sure. The lyrics, again, they're dismal, but they're well-written and let you bring your own experiences to them. Unfortunately for me, I connect all too well to them. I think that's why this band appeals to me so much. The following track is New Dawn Fades. You like this one, Dylan? Oh, yeah. I, I love this back half of the album. Uh, I love how the echoing drums are back and Peter Hook, again, coming in strong at the bass. I say this every time. Yeah. But uh, we also get some more Bernard Sumner. We haven't really been hearing as much of him out front in the last couple songs, but he has a really like simple but effective guitar riff in there. There's sort of a pseudo guitar solo in the song, which is really interesting for, uh, you know, you're not really expecting that for Joy Division. But uh, the lyrics are super chilling, uh, you know, looking back at Ian Curtis's suicide, you know, the one line of a loaded gun won't set you free. So you say, oh, yeah. I mean, that wasn't how how he ended his life, but it's still just it's it's kind of like listening to David Bowie's last album and and almost feeling like he knew that like things were going to end the right. way that they did. And it, it's really just like ugh, kind of creepy. This begins with a weird-ass backwards sample that I read came from the previous track, and then we hear the juxtaposition of Hook's descending bass line that frames the track, and Sumner's nearly ugly ascending riff that's all held together with Morris's steady and slow beat that gives the vibe of a like a thick black fog rolling in and swallowing everything up in its path. And Ian is down deep in the darkness in this one. You were alluding to that. He first sings softly. He expresses a desire to get away, change the scene, escape from his troubles, maybe start over, but he can't pull himself out. He's sinking. He once again acknowledges his part in the decay. He's starting to believe there's no way out. He's not sure if a loaded gun will set him free or not. And as the song progresses, the strains overwhelming him. He's shouting. He can't take much more. He sees himself more clearly. He blames himself. He needs an out. Then the music slows down. The guitar and bass slowly fade away, and all we're left with is the drums, kind of isolated in space, like a heartbeat, clinging to life until it just stops. I think most people have contemplated suicide in their lives. I know I've imagined it. I think almost everybody does it at various points. 
but most people don't act on it. And this song can devastate me when I'm in a certain mood because I have felt the way Ian Curtis does in this song on My Darkest Nights. I think it's very relatable. This is a Joy Division highlight, one of their signature tracks, and it's been covered by artists such as Moby and John Frusciante. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on She's Lost Control. And she turned around and took me by the hand and said I've lost control again. And how I'll never know just why I understand she said I've lost control again. And she screamed out kicking on the side and said I've lost control again. And she's upon the floor I thought she died she said I've lost How about this one, Dylan? I love how it, it opens up with the electronic drums, the syncopated sounds to do that. And then we have another hooky bass riff from Peter Hook. Uh, Ian's vocals have a, a, an interesting echo that I haven't really heard it done like this, except on this song. And it makes the, the mix kind of sound really claustrophobic. And then the guitar also picks up in the second verse to add to that cacophony. And it's really sonically dense to really impact the the closeness and you know the almost like it's almost like you're feeling a, an episode of epilepsy from it and uh the the part where the bass and the guitar sync up uh, in a riff in the middle of the song is really interesting and the band almost gets jammy at times towards the end of the song which again it's very interesting to hear joy division kind of go off on a riff and and jam out and i really i really enjoy this one yeah everything about this track is memorable for me Morris's drums sound mechanical, detached, very Krautrock influenced. Hook is up in the high notes again, shaping an instantly recognizable bass line that the track is built around. Sumner's guitar sounds like a low snarling animal as it repeats in ascending riff. And Ian Curtis sounds like he's from another planet. His urgent voice is heavily treated with effects that you were talking about, Dylan. It just make his singing like echo into itself, yeah. and then it fades back into the darkness. And none of these parts, like like disorder, should work together, but they totally do. And the result is like an, like, I, I even wrote this, unnerving cacophony that borders on <laughs> chaos. I read that the lyrics were inspired by a woman that Ian knew through his job at an occupational rehabilitation center where he witnessed her having an epileptic seizure. He later learned that she died from having a seizure, which makes this all the more chilling since by this time, Ian himself was diagnosed with epilepsy and he was beginning to suffer from tonic-clonic seizures that grew worse and more frequent over time. So I'm thinking he must have completely identified with the woman he was singing about in this track. I think it's just as much about him as this woman. I love this track. This is the first Joy Division song I ever heard, and it turned me on to the band, thanks to that YouTube clip of them performing this live for the BBC. And in it, you see Morris concentrating as he plays his syndromes. Sumner is basically just standing still playing his guitar. Hook is kind of bobbing and swaying as he plays his bass with his legs spread apart. But Ian, holy shit. Have you ever seen this, Dylan? Yeah. Oh, it's it's wild. He he looks like he goes into a trance, right? His eyes get heavy and occasionally they roll back in his head. And he starts to dance, but you've never seen anyone dance like this before. He sways violently back and forth with his arms like stiffly flailing all over the place. He's completely absorbed in the music. It looks like he's having a seizure right there. 
But from what I read, that's just the way he danced. And I, I pity any partner he might have danced with. They would have gotten smacked around. It's it's so bizarre to watch, but it's also arresting. You can't take your eyes off him. A different kind of front man than you've ever seen, for sure. Mm-hmm. An extended, more electronic version of this was recorded and released as a single in 1980. It was one of the last things the band ever recorded. The next track is Shadow Play. In the shadow play, acting out your own death, knowing no more. The assassin's old group, ten more lines dancing on the floor. I'm with cold steel, odor around the bodies made of boot to command. Dylan, let's have it. So this one absolutely has some get up and go. The bass and the drums right at the beginning are building up. The cymbals are crashing. The guitar comes in bombastically, way more energetic than a lot of the other songs on this album. Ian's back to his Jim Morrison sounding vocals. Uh, There's some really good guitar licks here to give Bernard Sumner some action. I love the crashing that happens with the drums. There's almost like an emphasis on some of the syllables where it's like a chow that I really, really love. Uh, really good uh, fills as well from Stephen Morris in this song. He's he's really having the time of his life, it sounds like. And it, and this is kind of the closest the band gets to feeling punky, uh, in my opinion, with the soloing at the end. And I also love how these lyrics are. It almost plays out like it's a it's its own story, like a poem that you could hear at like a beatnik coffee shop and you could snap along to at the end, you know, because it was so good. I, I it's just so lyrical. I, I love it. Yeah. Well, like you said, this is more straightforward. You know, the tempo's faster for a Joy Division cut. And the bass line's mostly just two notes played rapidly and repeated. So this one is more of a showcase for Sumner's noisy guitar. He plays that cool lick at the end of each stanza that sticks in your head, and he gets an honest-to-goodness solo that's mostly a lot of blaring chords and screechy, feedback-drenched notes. I'm not sure exactly what Ian's singing about again, but the images are cool. I interpret them to reflect his feelings of isolation and alienation from others. He senses that other people want to connect with him, but it wasn't what he needed or was looking for. He just kind of moves through the silence without motion, waiting for you. Again, these all these lyrical interpretations are my own personal ones. I mean, I, I'm, you know, listeners, if you know this music, you might have your own interpretation. That's I, I get it. This was first recorded in 1978 for RCA Records. Joy Division had a contract with that label originally. And they recorded 11 songs that was to be their first album, but the band hated the results and asked to be let go of the contract. And RCA complied, and the album was just basically scrapped. The RCA version doesn't have the Hannett production, so it's a little bit more direct and raw. It's much more punk rock, and it's really good. But I dig this version, too. This is another standout track for me, and it was a live staple for the band. The following track is Wilderness. I traveled far and wide to many different times. What did you see there? I saw the saints with their toys. What did you see there? I saw a What do you say, Dylan? 
this one definitely has a different energy than shadow play. There's almost a shuffly beat that, that I can't really describe from the drums. Uh, there's a really cool guitar and bass part around the 140 mark. That's really fun. I, I love how Ian sings the tears in their eyes uh, part at the end. And it's a really good example of what I said earlier about him going loud towards the end of the song while doing a softer presentation of it at the beginning of the song. So that was a, a really fun, well, not fun, but it was a really, a really good example of that. I thought. It's another track that's built around the baseline. A lot of Joy Division songs are hook throws in some slides too. That sound cool, especially against Morris's his drum beats a little bit busier this time. I think that to, to me, that's why it sounds different. He's, he's playing a little bit more notes than he usually does. Sumner's riff sounds abrasive and almost in the background, but all the elements come together in spots for like punctuational bomb bomb that snap the music back in place. There's a guitar solo in this one that plays with the theme of the riff. Nothing fancy or showy. Sumner probably wasn't even capable of anything fancy at this point of his career. He, you know, <laughs> these guys could barely play their instruments famously when, you know, when they started. Lyrically, I pick up a criticism of organized religion as he refers to prisoners of the cross, the power and glory of sin, the blood of Christ on their skins. And he also seems to reference medieval Inquisition trials. That's what I'm hearing anyway. This is a solid track. I wouldn't call it a favorite, but yeah, I, I, there's not a track on this album that I don't like. Same. The penultimate track is Interzone. Dylan, let's have it. This is another punky song for the band. Uh, I think it works really well, especially with what's coming after. It almost doesn't feel like it's Joy Division at the beginning for how it sounds until Ian comes in with those call and response vocals that are really interesting in how they kind of talk to each other, but almost drown each other out at the same time, where you can't really hear what one of the vocals is saying, and you kind of have to figure out, okay, I'm going to listen to the first part, or I'm going to listen to the the laid back part. And it really helps with uh, looking at it for uh, the next listen and trying to decipher what, what is being said back and forth in this conversation almost of, uh, of lyrics. Like you said, this is another faster paced track, at least by Joy Division standards. Morris gets in some sweet, fast hi-hat work, and he also adds in some quick fills that give the impression of momentum. This one sounds different because Sumner and Hook are both playing the same heavy riff together. They attack the tune together, and for a change, Joy Division sounds like a machine in sync with each other instead of like <laughs> these different parts that kind of... Yeah. And this is the noisiest, most punk rock track on the record for me. Yet, funnily enough, it grew out of a cover tune. It was another song recorded for the RCA sessions, and their A&R man, Richard Searling, wanted the band to cover one of his favorite songs, Keep On Keeping On, by L.A. soul singer Nolan N.F. Porter. Now, of course, Joy Division had about as much soul as a toaster oven, and they botched the cover, though the guitar lick from Keep On Keeping On kind of morphed into the main riff for this tune. This track is also interesting as it features, like you said, that call and response. Now, it's between Peter Hook. Peter's singing the first part, 
and Ian singing that second, you know, that, that lower part. <laughs> they do this because it's sort of as a cut-up homage to author William S. Burroughs and his whacked-out novel, Lit Naked Lunch. The original working title of the book was Inner Zone, and much of the novel takes place in the imaginary setting of Inner Zone. The lyrics are inspired by the novel, and I, I've never read the novel, but I've seen the movie, and the movie's just, you, you can't even follow what's going on, it's so weird. And it's got these surreal images that reference rebellion against authoritarian control, paranoia, and everyday life is just nightmarish surrealism. So yeah, I don't get it either, but who cares? It works. This is the shortest track on the record at 2 minutes, 18 seconds. It just kind of smacks you in the face and gets out. And that brings us to the final track, I Remember Nothing. We How about this last one, Dylan? So I usually like an album to either end in a bombastic display of of musicianship or I like it to end on a reflective note. And I think I Remember Nothing is absolutely the latter. It's (laughs) a very moody song to end the album. I think it's a perfect ender. Uh, The lyrics are super sad about his relationship with his wife. You know, we were strangers for way too long. That's a really sad line that that hits me every time. There's some noises of things clattering to, to the ground after being thrown that's really unnerving and adds to that tense atmosphere. Ian's vocals are actually a little different on this song, and he goes in for longer melodies than he has been for the rest of the album. And the intensity builds at times and then fades back down, and there's some really disconcerting keyboards in the background. The one lyric part that really stuck out to me is, violent, more violent, his hand cracks the chair, moves on reaction, then slumps in despair, trapped in a cage and surrendered too soon, me and my own world, the one that you knew. It's like really compelling, especially when um, the the one that you knew is drowned out by for way too long, is being sung over it, mm. and it it just sends shivers down my spine. And I, it's a really intense ending to the album, and it's another one to play at your hipster record store to scare off the the people that the normies <laughs> that'll come in. Oh yeah, it's certainly just we. A buzzing drone, a slow drum beat, deep plonking bass notes, breaking glass, weird ambient noises, the guitar making staccato sounds, spacey keyboard atmospherics, Ian's off-key voice floating through the space. This is one dark, moody, bizarre motherfucker of an album closer. It's basically an audio experiment, right? Hannett takes his innovative production techniques to its furthest conclusion. This is less a song than like a minimalist sound collage, somewhat taking its cue from the Berlin-era period of David Bowie that the band, particularly Ian, was a big fan of. I am too, actually. It's also creepy and unsettling as fuck, which is the effect the album has in general on me anyway. And to me, the lyrics are about a guy who's so into his own head his own little world that he can't function properly in his relationship, obviously with his wife. There, like you said, there's more strangers than partners. Ian's detached, angry, and ultimately despairing. 
which is in a way pretty much describes his general mindset. This is no pop number. There are zero hooks in this. And I imagine a lot of people on first listen might not get it. They're, like you said, get scared out of the record shop. But for this particular album, after the trip we've been through, this is absolutely the perfect way to end the record, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Now that the track is finished, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is worse than Ian Curtis singing Sesame Street songs. <laughs> Dylan, what are your final thoughts on Unknown Pleasures? For a first album from a band, this is absolutely a swing for the fences. I think that they really, even though they had no idea how to actually play their instruments really well, I think that they came together to make something that was so unique, and I don't think anything's really sounded like it since, even. Like, a lot of people will try to imitate it, but nobody ever gets close, or, you know, it's just kind of the perfect storm of, of the musicians and the producers coming together, and I know the producer said that they were the perfect people to record with because they, they didn't know anything, so they were just, <laughs> he could just guide them where he needed them to be. And I would call this a really fantastic debut album. I'd give it a four out of five. Nice. On June 4th, 1976, childhood friends Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook separately saw a Sex Pistols show at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, England, inspiring them to buy instruments and form their own punk rock band. The newly formed group placed an advertisement for a vocalist and got a response from an acquaintance named Ian Curtis who was hired without an audition. The band was originally called Stiff Kittens, allegedly, at the suggestion of the Buzzcocks frontman Pete Shelley, but settled on the name Warsaw while eventually picking up drummer Stephen Morris, who knew Curtis, answered an ad, and completed the lineup. However, when Warsaw realized there was a London punk band called Warsaw Pact, a name change was in order, so in early 1978, they settled on Joy Division, taking the name from the sexual slavery wing of a Nazi concentration camp, as mentioned in the 1955 novel House of Dolls. The band recorded its debut EP, An Ideal for Living, and performed the first show as Joy Division on January 25, 1978, at Pip's Disco in Manchester. In April, they took on manager Rob Gretton and caught the attention of producer, impresario, television personality, Tony Wilson, who promoted the group on record and with TV appearances and convinced them to join his record label, Factory Records. As Joy Division were making a name for themselves, Ian Curtis had his first serious epileptic seizure and was hospitalized, but the band decided to just carry on and push past Curtis's increasing health issues. Over three weekends in April 1979, Joy Division recorded its debut album at Strawberry Studios in Stockport with eccentric producer Martin Hannett, who significantly altered Joy Division's sound with his unorthodox production techniques. Like Dylan said, Hannett enjoyed working with the group as they were raw and didn't object to his methods, but the resulting sound was a far cry from Joy Division's original punk rock roots, and Sumner and Hook in particular were unsatisfied with the results. The album cover was designed by graphic designer Peter Seville and used an image from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Astronomy showing a representation of radio waves emitted by Pulsar CP1919, basically the radio waves of a dying star. Seville reversed the image from black on white to white on black against the band's wishes, and the cover has come to be recognized as an all-time classic. When Unknown Pleasures was released, it was met with general critical praise and achieved relative commercial success. 
But over time, it's come to be regarded as a landmark album that kicked off what would eventually be coined as the broad musical genre post-punk. I had heard of this album long before I actually heard the album. So when I got this, I originally thought, huh, this is really odd. I've spent this podcast trying to describe their sound. And on first listen, honestly, it didn't get my dick hard. But there was something about it that intrigued me. Maybe it was the bleak mood and despairing lyrics. Maybe it was the cold and spacious sound. But for some reason, I just kept listening to it. And the album just seeped under my skin like some kind of eerie primordial ooze. And I found myself becoming a Joy Division fan. And then I realized the massive influence this record has. I hear the echoes of this in bands from The Cure to Radiohead to early U2. And it can be argued that this is the first post-punk record, and I love post-punk, whatever that means. It's a pretty huge umbrella. Now, I recognize that they are an acquired taste, and the unrelenting, depressing nature of the music can be overbearing. There is virtually no joy in Joy Division, and I don't listen to them all the time. But I have these moments where I'm pensive, self-reflective just in a fucking downer mood, and I don't want to be cheered up. I just want a sympathetic ear, someone to tell me they understand and it's okay to feel this way. And that's when Joy Division really speaks to me. It's like the band is telling me, yep, we get you, man. We feel shitty too. Come hang with us for a little while. The short saga of Joy Division gets even bleaker after this point, and that story will be a podcast for another day. But take a look at that album cover of Unknown Pleasures. It's been said that the music sounds exactly the way that album cover looks. I totally agree. And sometimes that album cover is a portrait of me. I really dig this record and I give Unknown Pleasures a four. Now I'd like to thank Dylan Wright from the Potter Than Hell podcast for joining me and entering the domain of Joy Division. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a fantastic journey. Uh, Really helped me rediscover my love for this album because it's been a while since I'd listened to it and yeah, dude, we spoke about this earlier. I really appreciate you coming on because I really thought this was going to have to be a solo episode for me because I don't know a lot of Joy Division fans. So I was on Potter Than Hell. We were doing that uh, playlist episode, and I mentioned that I was listening to this, preparing for this, and you, I, I heard you say, yeah, I like that. And you were kind of getting taken. You know, like I can't hear BC crying in his beard to Joy Division, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, so exactly. I, I really appreciate you coming on. So go ahead and plug your podcast and anything else you want to talk about. Yeah, I am a part of the Potter Than Hell podcast. We cover hard rock and heavy metal, and we can be found on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, anywhere you could find podcasts. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash PTH podcast, P as in Peter, T as in Teeter, and H as in Heater podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. Rock on! See ya!
Ian Curtis sings kids songs. <laughs> Ring around the rosy. <laughs> it could be a double billing of him and Peter Steele from <laughs> Typo Negative. Oh man, they should they should have done a duet. Would have been classic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Susanna, oh, don't 